Good morning, Christ Church. I was looking around in the first service and kind of asking, where are all the youth? And it occurred to me, um, they're on a retreat. We have about 60 youth and leaders who are on a retreat. I think the bus is going to roll up somewhere in the middle of the service, and all the kids are just going to flood in. So it'll be a really fun moment if that happens. And um, I love these kind of retreats, and I can't wait to hear some of the stories that come back. One story you might hear kind of just buzzing around is I do think that there is uh, a proposal and an engagement planned on the retreat between some of the leaders. So that'll be pretty exciting to hear that story and talk to those leaders when they get back. Let's pray as we get into the sermon. Kind Father, we, we turn to your word, and your word, it's alive with power. The Bible, your words, they're, so, they're different than this is not a book we're reading like any other book. Jesus, when you spoke these words in the Sermon on the Mount, they had power, and they still have power. So today, as our hearts are open to receive your word afresh, Holy Spirit, would you come and apply these powerful words, and in areas of our heart where we've been closed off, would you minister? And our ultimate goal is to be formed, reformed into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, to love you, God, and to love our neighbors. We pray all of this in your powerful name. Amen. Well, as you might have been able to tell from the, the prayer there, we are going into what I consider to be the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. And, you know, for the past few weeks, we have been going through the Sermon on the Mount in our series all the way through the Gospel of Matthew. And each week, um, either Father Cliff or I, we've said something to the effect of this is the most important sermon ever preached. I said it last week, you cannot outlive the Sermon on the Mount. The life, your life, for the rest of your life, is attending to these powerful words that Jesus spoke. Not just ordinary words, but words that shape the very life you live. What makes Christianity so different from every other religion, we come up against that today in the Sermon on the Mount. What makes your lives as disciples, the way you interact with coworkers, friends, spouses, parents, children, so different from every other this way of living is these words that we encounter in this Sermon on the Mount. You remember how the sermon begins in Matthew 5. Jesus, noticing the crowds are there, he goes up on a mountain and he sits down and his disciples come to him. And you remember in scripture that whenever you go up on a mountain, you're expecting we're about to meet with God, right? Like think back to the Old Testament and you've got um, Elijah after that showdown with Ahab. He's running, he's fleeing, he's worn out, he's tired. He goes to Mount Horeb. And God shows up, not in a big earthquake, not in a big fire, but in a still small voice. God shows up when he goes up on the mountain. You remember Abraham. Abraham is going to sacrifice his son Isaac. He's doing this in response to God. He goes up on Mount Moriah. And there on Mount Moriah, before the sacrifice, suddenly a ram is caught in the thicket. An angel of the Lord stops his hand. And on, the Mount, of, on Mount Moriah, it is said, the Lord has provided. You meet God on the mountain. And then Moses goes up on Mount Sinai, encounters the Lord, and comes down bringing, this is the way, the law that God calls us to lead. Jesus goes up on the mountain, and we're expecting, how are we going to encounter God? The disciples go up, and in Jesus, they encounter God. His words, his teaching, God in flesh, speaking, revealing, this is the heart of the Lord. We're coming today to the heart of of the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. If Jesus had to title his sermon, if he had podcasts, if there were podcasts 2,000 years ago, 
And there were people saying, Jesus, give us a sermon for that sermon that you just preached on the mount. He might call it this, the heart of my disciples, how I want my disciples' hearts to be in the world. And if I were titling this sermon today, I would call it the heart of the heart of his disciples, the center of the center, the very core, what, what the essence of what we're getting to in all of Christianity. That's what we're going to get into. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Pull out your scripture passage. We're going to be following along with the ways Jesus, um, the, the passage that we just heard read. We begin in verse 38. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now this teaching, um, this teaching actually gives us familiar phrases that you've heard before. And so we have phrases in our society, we say things like, you need to go the extra mile. Which when we say go the extra mile, what we generally mean is like, you need to work really hard if you want to achieve that thing which is not at all what Jesus was talking about. That's a very American interpretation. Like only Americans can take a Jesus teaching and totally flip it on its head, right? He says, turn the other cheek. When someone slaps you, turn the other cheek. And this common phrase, sometimes the way this is interpreted in just kind of our vernacular is if someone hurts you, be away from them. Don't be near the person who's hurting you. Also, again, not what Jesus is saying here. So what is he teaching right now? And to get to that question, or to get to the answer, what is he teaching? I want to show you a pattern of how Jesus is teaching. There's a pattern to his teaching. And Jesus is a masterful teacher. He's a master preacher. So this is a pattern that he uses all in Matthew chapter 5. He begins by referencing the letter of the law, the Old Testament law. He says, you have heard that it was said. This is the starting point for his teaching, the letter of the law. Six times in chapter 5, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said. You have heard that it was written. You have heard that it was said, do not murder. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. You've heard that it was said, do not break your oaths. He's appealing to Old Testament law because God's law never changes. He says, That's, there's your starting point right there. And then he says, but I want to teach you something deeper. Not that I want to contradict, but I actually want to bring about the fullness of what we were being taught from Moses. You remember a few weeks ago, we encountered that teaching. Um, he says, I'm not coming to abolish the old. I'm coming to fulfill it. And what we've got from the Old Testament, we've got these laws. It's like we've got part of it, but now we're getting to see the fullness. What might this law fully look like? So he begins with the letter of the law. And then he says, but I say to you, here's the spirit, here's the deeper, here's what God is intending, here's God's heart for how you're supposed to live. And look at this, Jesus doesn't say, you have heard that it was said, and now God says to you, you should live like this. He says, you have heard that it was said, and I say to you, I am the authority, I am God revealing to you how you are to live. You've heard that it was said, do not murder, but I say to you, the heart of this command is not to be unjustly angry towards your neighbor. You've heard that it was said, do not break your oaths, but I tell you, live in such integrity that you don't have to swear even at all. And then he finishes with um, the, this pattern with an example of saying, and here's what this might practically look like. Jesus is trying to teach us how do you practically live that out. And so he'll give us examples of how this might be lived, almost kind of like a disciples try doing it this way. 
try and live my command like this and see how it goes. This is how I'm talking. Jesus is always so practical about how we love and treat other people. So we begin in verse 38. Knowing this pattern, what is Jesus teaching? Jesus begins by saying this, the letter of the law. He's saying, how do you treat those who have hurt you? How do you treat those who have hurt you? In a room like this, all of us have been hurt. How do you treat those people who have hurt you? And he says, here's what the letter of the law says. The letter of the law says it's written that if someone pokes out your eye, then their eye should be poked out. But he says, let me show you the deeper heart of justice. When someone mistreats you, you have options. Option one would be to fight back. They hurt you, you hurt back. They hit you, you hit back. That's option one. Option two might be something like you run away. They hurt you, you run away, so you don't have to encounter the pain anymore. And he says, but there's actually a third option, an option three. This is at the heart of the law. The third option is you can forgive. Not fight, not flight, you can forgive. The core of what Jesus is describing, he doesn't use the word forgiveness, but he is describing how one of his followers, one of his apprentices, one of his disciples, someone like you and me, how he intends for us to treat another person when we ourselves have been hurt. He says, I'm calling you to forgiveness as your option. And forgiveness is one of those words, everyone thinks that we know what it means until we have to practice it. So I'm going to spend a a moment just talking and describing forgiveness. Forgiveness is not passivity. It's not doing nothing. Forgiveness is not ignoring evil when it happens. Forgiveness does not mean remaining in a physically abusive relationship. I spoke about this last week, and you can go back and listen to that. Forgiveness does not mean being unwise, like continuing to put temptation in a person's path. If you've loaned money to someone and they are continuing not to pay you back and it's causing rift between you, it would be unwise to continue doing that. Forgiveness is none of those things. In fact, forgiveness is something else, not passive. Forgiveness is active. Not unwise. Forgiveness is wise. Not ignoring evil. Forgiveness names evil. Forgiveness begins with justice. This is the first start, the, the, the starting point of the pattern. We don't forget justice. Jesus says it begins with justice, which is really interesting. And you might wonder, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean this, that a good law in the United States is something like an eye for an eye. That's actually a good, a good law that we have, that if someone hurts you, then they should be put in jail. There should be some sort of balance out effect that happens in civil society. There's some, there needs to be some way of restoring the balance. And Jesus is acknowledging that if someone does an injustice to someone else, they owe a debt that somehow it needs to be repaid. There's an imbalance. And what justice does, justice tries to restore the imbalance. Justice says there's been something wrong, so let me make it right. Let me try and put the scales right. Forgiveness begins in at least naming Injustice. It at least has to name the injustice that has happened. Too often, Christians think they're supposed to forgive someone else, and then they, they gloss over the importance of actually naming the evil. Like, actually, they, they, they get over, they'll, they'll do something like, well, it's okay, it doesn't matter, I'm not upset about that. And that's, that's wrong. That's not forgiveness. Forgiveness begins by actually acknowledging the hurt, acknowledging the pain or the evil. Sometimes Christians think you have to rush towards forgiveness. Something big and grave and serious has happened in your life. And the right Christian thing to do is to forgive the other person. So I quickly just tell them, I forgive you. 
I rush to forgiveness because I want to do the right thing, and so I rush to forgiveness. But when you do that, you haven't actually taken stock of how deep did that hurt go in your life? How painful was it? Can you account for all the different ways that that person hurt you? you you're trying to rush to forgiveness because you want to follow Jesus' command, but you haven't done the hard work of diving deep to say, how deeply did that wound me when you did that to me? I'll never forget an example uh, one bishop gave me on forgiveness, and um, I'm confessing this as someone who is prone to rush to forgiveness. I, I want to do the right thing. I want to rush to forgiveness. And so we were having a, I was having a conversation with this bishop, and um, he gave me a wonderful example, and I often share this with people because it's been so helpful for me. And I'll share it with you right now. He said, imagine this. Imagine um, at your house, you've got a, a home, and um, out front, you have a lovely flower bed that you've planted. You've got your petunias and Whatever else goes in, I don't know, what goes in flowers beds. But in my mind, um, petunias is the only flower I think that I'm supposed to plant. But there's some yellows and some greens in, in your front yard, and you've spent some time working on it. And at one in the morning, you hear a loud noise, and you go rushing to the front yard, and there's a car, your neighbor, has driven over the mailbox, driven through the flower bed, and left tire marks all in the front yard. You're looking at the situation. You're praising the situation. He stumbles out of the, the car, and you notice my neighbor has had too much to drink, and he's come home, and he's wrecked the flower bed, the mailbox. I'm looking at the situation, and I can say to him right now, they're just flowers. I can forgive you. And then the bishop said, and then imagine that you looked around, and you noticed your dog had run out that night. And your neighbor had run over the dog inadvertently in this whole scene, the family dog, the beloved family dog. And now you're looking at this situation. And the bishop asked me, does the forgiveness that you've already given that man still count? The answer is no, because there's been new cost, new offense, new injustice that now has to be felt, has to be named, and then would have to be reapplied to forgiveness. If you say, I forgive you to another person, but you have not told them the extent of the hurt, or you haven't assessed the extent of the offense, then you haven't actually forgiven them because you haven't named the ways of injustice. Jesus says forgiveness begins in justice. It's, I'm going to bring out the fullness of the law, but the, the, the law starts. I'm not going to contradict God's word. The law starts by acknowledging the evil. If you try to do this, in fact, you will grow bitter. If you try to forgive someone without fully counting the cost. If you've ever been in another person's presence and you thought you've forgiven them, but your tendency when you're around them is to get louder, to argue over the top of them, to make yourself and your presence more big in their presence, or when you see them coming, you're, you're, you actually instead try to walk the other way, right? If you ever do either one of those things, um, I would encourage you to, to consider, have you truly forgiven them yet? Because I don't think there's been reconciliation. Forgiveness works to bring reconciliation, and the only way that happens is by fully naming all the sin, fully naming all the offense. Now, oh, uh, before I go on, um, forgiveness takes active work, hard examination, choice to forgive. I heard a study a few years ago. It was an amazing study, actually, and it was dealing, well, I don't even want to go there. I mean, just, I should stick to my notes. Um, <laughs> The point of the study was to say, do you know how long it takes to actively forgive another person who's wronged you, who's hurt you badly? The study was for people who have been hurt badly. Do you know how long it takes on average to choose to forgive another person? Six hours. 
Six hours of actively choosing, willing the good of another person, of saying, I am forgiving them for this thing that happens to me. It takes, on average, about six hours before you start to feel that you can even be in their presence again, before you can be in their presence without running away or, or anything like that. Forgiveness is choice. Work takes intentional work, intentional soul work in the presence of God, and it takes time. It's not a one-time momentary choice. It is an ongoing daily choice. Now, the question then comes up is, well, who should be forgiven? And this is difficult because Jesus actually doesn't qualify the who. Someone slaps you. Someone sues you. Someone forces, a soldier forces you to march. A person begs from you. In each of these circumstances, you are his disciples called to forgive. Jesus does not qualify who gets to receive forgiveness. And here's why this is hard. Because for each of us in this room, I'm sure that there is there are 90% of the people in your life you think you can forgive. But there's a 10% of people in, in your life who have seriously wounded you, seriously hurt you, who might have brought ruin to your life, who might have shaped your character in a way you didn't want to be shaped. And Jesus is still calling you to forgive. And that feels hard. And if you're wondering right now, well, then how am I supposed to forgive them? you're probably in the same position as the disciples because Jesus doesn't go on in the sermon. He doesn't change topics. Actually, he wants to go deeper on this one topic. So look how he launches into this next section, verse 43. He continues on. He says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, on my authority, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, we... I mentioned that the way Jesus begins his pattern, he starts with an Old Testament law, and then he's going to give the spirit of the law. Do you know where in the Old Testament it says, love your neighbors and hate your enemies? Does anyone know that? I didn't know it either. So I Googled it. And it doesn't say that in the Old Testament. You cannot read the Old Testament and say that. In fact, the Old Testament says the opposite. Here's a couple of, um, a couple of quotes from Proverbs and Exodus. Proverbs 25 says, If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. Exodus 23 says, if, speaking of the enemy, if you have an enemy and you see the donkey of the person, the enemy, is lying down under its burden. So if your enemy, someone who doesn't like you or you're, you're at odds with one another, is so burdened down a donkey that the donkey can't even walk anymore, your job should be to go and help the donkey in his burdens, help your enemy in his burdens. The important thing I'm trying to show right now is, where is Jesus quoting this from? You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. He's not getting this from the Old Testament. He actually breaks pattern and says, you know how everyone is. Everyone says, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Everyone says that. That's like common life. That's how it was 2,000 years ago. That's how it is today. Like this is the Mandalorian. This is the way, right? <laughs> love your neighbors, hate your enemies. That's how we're brought up to live. That's how we, that's just, that's the, the, the life that we always swim in. Love my, love my family, love my friends, love my teammates, love my coworkers. Those who are against me, hate. Set myself against those who hate me. But Jesus, the king, says, I say to you, love your enemies. A few years ago, I was praying through the Sermon on the Mount, and I realized I was disagreeing with Jesus. I couldn't think. First of all, I don't like that he uses the word enemies. This is Jesus. He's supposed to be, like, very kind and nice. But he's talking about enemies. And I was thinking in my mind, I was like, do I have enemies? Do I have people in my life that are actually enemies? 
I don't, I don't walk around looking at, you guys know me, I'm generally pretty upbeat. I don't walk around thinking, oh, that person's the enemy. That, you know, like, that's just not my frame of reference. And I was praying through this and just felt like my conclusion was, I do have enemies. I'm just not bold enough to face them. I have people that have hurt me and I have people that I've hurt. And because of that, people I've ignored, because of that, I have people I'm not reconciled to. And so I just started keeping a list and every Wednesday making it a point to pray and say, Lord, would you bless these people that I'm not reconciled to? And would you empower me to do anything in my power to bring about reconciliation? I have enemies and you have enemies too. And who are your enemies? Have you ever thought about this before? Who are your enemies? Jesus is saying something very practical right here. He says, pray for, bless, love your enemies. Who are your enemies? As you might think of. I, had a, um, I heard an example this week of, of one enemy, and it's so practical. I wanted to share it with you just to give some illustration of who an enemy might be. It comes from someone who has worked very hard in their job. They have a young family. They've worked super hard. They've been in a very sprint season, and they asked uh, their boss for some PTO around the holidays while they have family coming in from out of town, just some extra time to spend with family, with their own young family, and they were denied the request without any kind of reason even though they've put in all this extra time. And I asked this person, we were talking to him, I said, well, how did you respond? And they said, you know, this honestly feels like a bless your enemy moment because I was really angry. There's a lot of emotion that I felt, a lot of emotion my spouse felt. But I'm wondering if Jesus is inviting me in this situation to love my enemy. Like maybe this is one of these moments of loving your enemy. And I said, well, what does it look like then to love your enemy? And this answer the person gave was really interesting. Because they said, well, it's, it's not just like I'm never going to ask for PTO again. I do think I was denied this, and, and in the future, I'm going to continue to ask and advocate for that. But I know that there are others who were denied time off, and they weren't given a reason. And so the temptation will be for all of us to gather around the water cooler and to start bad-mouthing our bosses. And so whenever that happens, uh, mis- which leads to misunderstanding, which me- leads to maligning them, Um, and ultimately hating them. So whenever that water cooler chatter happens, here's the choice I'm making right now, and here's how I'm going to walk. I can either leave that conversation, or I can be silent, or I can actually speak up and and encourage the group to change the subject. But I won't participate in it, because participating in it is not loving and blessing my enemy in this situation. Isn't that such a practical example, like a real example of what it means to love an enemy? I'm going to name some enemies and see if any of these might connect with you. Maybe you have a family member who opposes your beliefs, your work, friendships, your lifestyle. They criticize you, speak down to you. They don't acknowledge you. You tend to withdraw from them when you're around them. Listen, we're going into Thanksgiving next week. Who's got family enemies? You are going to sit at a table with, I'm guessing, people who very much disagree with you. Maybe your enemies are in a business deal. There's a person who's not just competing against you, but they're speaking down to you. They're condescending you. They're spreading stories behind your back, maybe speaking to clients untruthfully about you. Maybe a former friend who has betrayed your confidence, spoken behind your back. Maybe as a leader, someone that you had to reprimand or correct in some way who is now embittered towards you. You know, we're coming into an election year, 2024. Did you know that? I'm aware. I'm aware of what we're coming into. Do you know how national politics, I mean, you just know 
We, we know the society we live in. And can Christians actually live differently? And one of my favorite quotes is, um, love's first act is to listen. Can you, with someone that you might be enemies politically, could you actually just sit down, hold space, and listen in love to the other person? Love your enemies. Who are your enemies? Who has hurt you? Who has set themselves against you? And Jesus says, love them, which is not like them, not feel good about them, not speak against them on social media, not ignore them. He says, love them. So I want to look at that word love for a minute. And we'll talk about this because this is one of those, you know, the New Testament has all these different words for love. And you've probably heard this before. You've read books that talk about the different forms of, of love. By the way, all the youth who are coming back in, welcome. We're glad for you to be back. So come in, get cozy, sit down wherever you want to. Just keep on coming in. Um, but you're welcome to come in right now and just interrupt and sit down. Um, Jesus uses the word for love that you've heard before called agape. Agape love, and um, the best definition I've ever heard for agape is choosing to do good for the other person, willing the good of the other person, the central part of you, the only part of you that can make choices towards another person, you are choosing to do good for that other person. This choice from your inner heart to love is a powerful act of the will. You are not passive. You're not ignoring evil, but it's a powerfully active stance of love so that you might forgive, so that you might turn the other cheek, so that you might not meet violence with violence. The best example of this that I have encountered comes from the 20th century and from the life, the ministry of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And in his book, Stride Towards Freedom, it's an amazing book, uh, he tells this autobiographical story of the Montgomery bus boycott. So picture in your minds, this is 1955 America, um, deep south Alabama, so it's in Montgomery, Alabama, racially segregated Alabama, and, um, and there are moments of violence that happen to Dr. King. His house is bombed, uh, his wife and his children are threatened, he himself is threatened, he goes many sleepless nights and he talks about this, carrying the burdens of this community. If you wanted to join the movement in 1955, if you wanted to boycott the buses, and if you wanted to participate in the carpool line uh, that was happening all over the course of the city, you had to attend a class with Dr. King or with another one of his leaders. And do you know what you did in the class? You worked through the process of how you, most likely you, a black Christian, would exercise love and forgiveness towards any other person, most likely a white Christian, if you were ever hit, yelled at, taken advantage of, mistreated. Part of the essential discipleship of that movement was practiced forgiveness towards those who have hurt you. It is one of the most powerful displays of taking the Sermon on the Mount seriously in the way they were called to love. And I want to I've got an excerpt. This is a longer quote on the screen now, but this is, he actually speaks at length about this word, agape, and loving your enemies. So Dr. King writes, in speaking of love at this point, we are not referring to some sentimental or affectional emotion. It would be nonsense to urge men to love their oppressors in an infectionist sense. In other words, Jesus is not concerned with your liking, your feeling good towards another person. That's not the choice to love. Agape is disinterested love. It is a love in which the individual seeks not his own good, but the good of his neighbor. 
Agape does not begin by discriminating between worthy and unworthy people or in any qualities people possess. It begins by loving others for their sakes. It is an entirely neighbor-regarding concern for others, which discovers the neighbor in every man it meets. Therefore, agape makes no distinction between friend and enemy. It is directed toward both. If one loves an individual merely on account of his friendliness, he loves him for the sake of the benefits to be gained from the friendship rather than for the friend's own sake. Agape is not a weak, passive love. Get this. Agape is love in action. Turn the other cheek. Give someone your tunic. Go with them an extra mile. Love your enemies. This is it. This is the heart of the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. This is what he is telling you, you who have come up the mountain, you whose disciples, his learners, his apprentices, you who want to follow the way of Jesus. He is saying, this is the way I'm calling you to walk, to love those who have hurt you, to bless those who have hurt you, to pray for those who have hurt you. And I want you to think for a moment in your mind right now about who is the person or maybe the people who have hurt you. Get a picture in your mind right now of anyone who has ever hurt you, mistreated you, ignored you, set you aside. And you might be wondering, how, Jesus? How is it possible to love that person in my mind right now? How is it possible to bless the person I'm considering right now? This is the heart of the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus answers that question in verse 48. He says, in blessing them, you are becoming perfect. It's a better translation to say becoming perfect. You are becoming perfect like your heavenly Father is perfect. That word perfect, we hear that and that probably feels very intimidating to you. Jesus is not saying you're becoming morally upright like your heavenly father is morally upright. He is saying that when you learn to bless even your enemy, you are becoming most like your heavenly father who sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous, who sends his sunlight on the righteous and the unrighteous, who blesses even his enemies. And you still might be wondering, but how in the world am I supposed to do that? And the way you do that, the only way to do that, before you can ever bless another person who has hurt you, you have to first recognize, and not just recognize with your mind, but believe deeply in your heart and at a soul level that you have been an enemy of God. That you yourself, sitting in this room right now, all of us, myself included, have done, have been, as part of our lives, set ourselves opposed to God have had opportunities where we know what we are supposed to do in the back of our minds, knowing what we're supposed to do, but instead for our own happiness, for our own sense of control, our own sense of peace, we followed our own way and in doing this have turned against God. You have to not just know that as a doctrine, you have to believe that at core, that I really have been against God in my life. Before facing the enemy, you have to face your own heart. Paul says it in Romans 5, and hear this today from our first reading. God shows his love, his agape, same word, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, his enemies. God died for you, his enemies. 
And not just in some vague sense that, yeah, I know that doctrine, whatever that is, the atonement, he did that. No, for you, he died in love. He put himself in place where you were supposed to be because forgiveness always costs something because injustice always demands a restoration of the injustice. And as a penalty of disobeying God, you, yourself, me, myself, deserved not life but death from him. And Jesus, knowing this, not saying I gloss over the evil, naming the evil, still chooses to go to the cross for you and for me, for us. Those words, for us, matter. He substituted himself in our place. I was watching an older movie uh, yesterday, Last of the Mohicans. I don't know if any of y'all have ever, ever seen it before. An amazing soundtrack. It's a movie I love. And I was watching it with my son. I've been telling him about it for a few uh, months now, and we've just been waiting for a time to watch it. So we kind of had the house to ourselves. It was just the, the boys. We were all sitting, me and my two uh, boys and our dog. Uh, we're all sitting on the couch, and the, just the boys watching the movie. And it gets to a moment, and every time I see this moment, it brings tears to my eyes in the end of the movie. And um, if this is revealing anything to you, you've had long enough to watch it anyway, but <laughs> you should still go and watch it. Uh, at the end of the movie, there's a young woman named Cora, and Cora, her, she is the daughter of a British colonel, and the British colonel has, in part of the war, um, he has ordered a destruction of a town that has killed Magua, another person's family. And so now, this woman, Cora, is standing in front of a tribal council, and the tribal chief is saying to her, your father killed his family. And now, because of that, you, his daughter, need to die. That's the judgment for her. She needs death. And as they're binding her hands and taking her away, there's another soldier there, Duncan, who has loved Cora throughout the whole movie. And every time he continues to profess his love for her, she rejects him and says, I don't love you back. I don't love you, Duncan. But Duncan steps forward in this moment, and he begins speaking a language that she can't understand, but the tribal chiefs understand. And he says, me for her, me for her. Take me instead of her, not her, me instead. No one knows what's going on because no one else can hear, but all of a sudden, the warriors come forward. They release her. They grab him. They take him, and they drag him to be burned at the stake. Duncan for Cora, me for her. She sees this. She witnesses this. And do you feel it? Christ on the cross, me for you, me for them, me in their place. I go for them because you, Father, love them, me for them. You cannot forgive that person that you have in your mind that has hurt you so much until you have received at a deep level, not in your mind, in the depths of your heart. You deserved it, and he took it. And this isn't just a doctrine that you keep at the forefront. Again, it is ways that in your prayer life, in the, the ways that you engage scripture, perhaps the ways you engage art, that you are daily re-reminding yourself, I belonged on the cross, and he did this for me. The heart of the heart of his disciples is a heart that has so deeply felt that forgiveness, that has so deeply felt the gift of someone else dying in your place that I no longer can hold even my enemies against me because I've been a greater enemy against God. 
This is the heart that he desires for each and every one of us. Let's pray together. Kind Father, would you make the cross, which we see so much, we wear necklaces, we see processing, would you make the cross not just an object of jewelry, but would you make it alive to our souls? And we would know the depth of love that you, King Jesus, died for us. And the Holy Spirit, take this truth and more put it in our minds, but deeper, sink it into our hearts, that we would live in the freedom that comes from receiving such a gift as a God who dies for us. We ask in your name, Lord. Amen.